Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Talking to Change, a motivational interviewing podcast. My name is Sebastian Kaplan, and I'm based in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, USA, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Glenn Hines from Derry, Northern Ireland. Hello, Glenn. Hey, Seb. Hey, ma'am. How's it going over there for you? Yeah, it's good. It's 11 o'clock at night for me on the 9th of August. I'm looking out on a very dark evening, quite a warm evening, which is quite surprising for us in this, this summer. We're having, uh, as I was saying to you before we came on air, we've been having lots of rain this summer, but the last couple of days have been really bright and warm. So... All's good. Yeah, yeah, all's good. It's a little after 6 p.m. We're, we're saying this because our guest is actually on in a different day, even not just a, a few hours before or, or ahead of us. 6 p.m. On, on Sunday the 9th, pretty nice, bright sunshine, hot and humid as it is in North Carolina throughout the summer. So um, it's been a nice weekend so far. Great, good. So we're going to do what we normally do and introduce our guest in a little bit. But before that, we want to orient the audience to social media. And we also want to acknowledge a person and an entity for the first time. So Glenn, why don't you get us started with the social media stuff? Following us or commenting on Twitter, it's at Change Talking, Talking to Change on Facebook and Talking to Change podcast on Instagram. And for email conversations with ourselves, it's podcast at glennhines.com. Excellent. And of course, rate and review us as you wish. Uh, we hope to get lots of feedback from people. So briefly, we wanted to acknowledge person and an entity, like I said, brief story. So back in September of 2019, I attended the Motivational Interviewing Network of Trainers Forum in Tallinn, Estonia. Glenn, unfortunately, uh, you could not join us. You were, you were missed for sure. You know, we were at this forum. It's like a conference for, for people who are unfamiliar with, with the forum, for, with the Mint Forum. And I was approached by one of our friends and colleagues, Brian Hartzler, who is a director at the Northwest Addiction Technology Transfer Center, which is based in Seattle, Washington in the USA. And for those who don't know, the ATTCs are a consortium of roughly 10 or so regional ATTCs in the US with a handful of international sites. And these are federally funded by the US government. Uh, federally funded programs or, or projects whose mission is to promote education in addiction treatment. And Brian, who we've known for many years, approached me at one of the coffee breaks and said that he had heard a bit about the podcast and listened to an episode or two and, and felt like it was something that was really valuable for the not only the MI community, but for the community at large in his world, which again is, is addiction uh, treatment providers. And he made a very generous offer to us to provide some support over the course of three years. 
And we're very grateful to him for his offer and we accepted that support. So it's our first sponsor, I guess. And uh, we wanted to express thanks to Brian and his team that we've been working with for the last several months to get that up and running. And uh, we hope that it will enhance the product. It's already enhanced my end, I know, because I have a new microphone as of a few episodes ago. So hopefully uh, it's been a more enjoyable um, experience already. Yeah. And I just want to give a personal shout out to Brian and the ATTC and my gratitude too for your support. Thank you. We are very pleased to have Abilio de Almeida Neto joining us, who from this point forward, we will refer to as Bill. Bill is joining us all the way from Sydney, Australia. And it is tomorrow right now where you are, Bill. And uh, <laughs> so we'll, we'll, we'll uh, say uh, welcome, Bill. Thank you very much, uh, Sebastian. Uh, thank you, Glenn. It's my great pleasure to be, you know, here, you know, with you. And indeed, I, I am in Sydney, you know, Australia. It is uh, August the tenth uh, here. It's a rainy day outside, but still a good day. So, uh, Bill, we're going to unpack a really interesting, but I, I imagine for many of audience members, a, a rather novel concept and even a novel field. We're really going to be exploring today the link between motivational interviewing and evolutionary theory. And we're going to dig deep into a paper that you wrote in 2017, which we'll, uh, we'll describe a bit later. But um, maybe you could start us off, as we often do with our guests, just tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you came to discover MI and, and how it's blended in with your uh, professional work. As you all know, uh, I am a psychologist. I graduated from the University of New South Wales nearly three decades ago, and I started my career in psychology as a clinician at the Prince of Wales Hospital here in Sydney in the area of uh, smoking cessation. So more precisely, as a motivational interviewing counsellor in the area of um, smoking cessation. And I can say that I was one of the early adopters. I started at, as a, an MI practitioner, no long after Bill Miller published uh, his seminal paper on motivational interviewing in 1983. So after working as a motivational interviewing counselor, for a few years in, in the area of uh, smoking cessation, I became very intrigued by motivational interviewing. And uh, one of the things that impressed me the most about motivational interviewing was how comfortable both counselors and clients were with uh, motivational interviewing. So I then decided to do a PhD in the area of uh, motivational interviewing. So I went to the University of Sydney and I graduated in the year 2000. And since I graduated, I've dedicated myself to research and also to training of uh, professionals from different backgrounds in motivational interviewing. After graduating, I worked in the healthcare setting as a researcher for nearly 10 years. And as I said before, I was fortunate enough to be able to use motivational interviewing in my research and also to train professional in the area. I then moved to the area of corrections where I worked for 11 years. And again, 
motivational interviewing, you know, was part of my research. And I also conducted a lot of training in motivational interviewing for professionals in the area. And I now work for the New South Wales government Centre for Work Health and Safety in the capacity of research manager. So I work in the area of uh, harm prevention in the workplace. And again, I am very fortunate because I, I have had the opportunity to use motivational interviewing in the area of uh, work health and safety and also to conduct extensive training in the area for professionals in the area of uh, work health and safety. So I have always been a very big fan of motivational interviewing from the very beginning. I can say that I was one of the early adopters, as I, you know, I said before. And, and I think that we need to recognize that nearly 40 years down the track, uh, motivational interviewing is still one of the best evidence-based uh, behavior change interventions in the world. So I see motivational interviewing as a gift that uh, Bill Miller and also Stephen Roenick gave to the uh, counseling world. So um, in summary, my career has always focused on research that promotes well-being, that promotes you know, people wellness. That's a brief you know, summary of uh, where you know, I come from, uh, Glenn and, and Sebastian. So MA has really been a part of your professional DNA. It's, it's influenced almost everything that you've done and, and every direction that you've taken has involved some form of relationship with motivation doing for you. Definitely. And, and when I started my career nearly 30 years ago, I never thought that um, it was going to be the beginning of a long MI journey for me. So that's what I describe my career as a long motivational interviewing journey for me. And, and one of the things that I suppose that has attracted us to have this conversation with you is the, the piece of work that you did around the evolutionary psychology and motivational interviewing. And perhaps you could tell us about how you found yourself following that path and what you've discovered. As you know, we never really had a theory of uh, motivational interviewing. So the delivery of uh, motivational interviewing in the counseling setting has always been based on efficacy data that clearly demonstrates that influences behavior, that motivational interviewing does influence behavior, but without a theoretical basis necessary for any comprehensive understanding. So without a theoretical basis that gives clinician an understanding of what they are doing when they engage in uh, motivational interviewing. And as we all know, past attempts to provide MI with a theoretical basis focused on the causes of behavior change, but they never address the mechanisms that mediate change. So they never explained the underlying mechanisms by which processes used in motivational interviewing induce behavior change. And I 
personally, you know, believe that if we are to make sense of motivational interviewing, we really need to understand these underlying mechanisms. We really need to understand what mediates in no change in uh, motivational interviewing. So if we gain this understanding, not only we have a much greater awareness, you know, much greater understanding of what we clinicians are doing in the counseling setting, but it also provides us with the opportunity to design more effective motivational interviewing sessions. So I think it's really important this understanding of the underlying mechanisms by which processes used in, in motivational interviewing induce behavior change. And as you mentioned, in the year 2017, I published you know, a paper whose title was Understanding Motivational Interviewing, an Evolutionary Perspective. And in this paper, I used an evolutionary framework to make sense of why and how motivational interviewing works. What I did was um, to provide an understanding of the adaptive significance of the strategies, the techniques that we use in motivational interviewing. So what I'll be talking about today is what happens in the human brain when two people interact and one tells the other what to do. So what mechanisms become active in the human brain and why? And hopefully we'll be able to apply this understanding of how the, the human brain works to make sense of why and how MI influences uh, behavior. So in other words, to understand why when we put pressure on someone to behave in a certain way, it leads to greater resistance you know, to do so. What I thought I would do initially is just to very briefly describe the theory, just to give listeners an initial understanding of the theory, and then we can talk about it in more detail. We can talk about it, we can elaborate you know, on it. Question about something you said earlier about the lack of the theoretical basis and why that would matter for clinicians. But also just to mention to the audience, we will be talking about this paper throughout, of course, and in the episode notes, we will put the citation for those who can access papers. Well, I suppose anybody could access it. Some people could access it by paying for the paper, others freely, but we would only be able to put the citation on there. My question, Bill, is without a theory, someone who is new to MI or learning about MI, or perhaps even an experienced clinician, the best that they could do is to either say, well, I do MI because it works, or they might be able to describe certain components, like for instance, well, we know that there's evidence that supports 
that increase of change talk or the presence of change talk is predictive of positive outcomes or other things like, you know, when we work with somebody, it sort of frees them up and they feel more uh, autonomy and therefore they're more able to make decisions that support healthy behavior or that kind of thing. But without that integrated theory, it's really just kind of a smattering of, of things we believe in, but, but it's not really connected well. Would you say is that like as far as the importance of, of having that theory for clinicians out there? Yes, exactly. And that goes back to a point that I made before, that past you know, theories of motivational interviewing, they focused on the causes of behavior change. Yes, you know, change talk is a, you know, a cause of behavior change. Yes, the way that we relate to the client is a cause of behavior change. You know, the spirit you know, of MI is a cause of behavior change. So uh, I think that uh, all of this understanding about motivational interviewing is very important and past theories that actually focused on the causes of behavior change like SDT you know, theory, they've been very important because they have emphasized the causes of behavior change. And they are very important when it comes to gaining that understanding of uh, motivational interviewing, but they do not explain how it works. And that's what you know, uh, I know I mentioned before. If we are to understand motivational interviewing, we also need to understand these underlying mechanisms by which processes used in motivational interviewing induce behavior change. And that's what the current understanding of uh, motivational interviewing doesn't do. And I believe that um, if we understand the underlying mechanisms, right, the mechanisms that mediate you know, change, then we have a much greater understanding of motivational interviewing, of how it works, and we will be able to conduct much more effective motivational interviewing uh, sessions. In some ways, it's by understanding, here's the, the, here's the description of motivational interviewing, SDT, and we, we spoke with Professor Ryan about the influence and the interconnectedness of SDT and motivational interviewing, and it sounds like you're taking us to another new level, which is then going to look at the mechanisms that the motivational interviewing and SDT explain, and you're going to describe the mechanics in the human mind and the human brain, why change happens or what it is a practitioner needs to be doing to influence an individual's willingness to change. Yes, you know, precisely. Because if you look at SDT, you know, what do they say? You know, they say that, you know, autonomy, you know, is important. You know, it's a cause of behavior change. You know, they say that competence, you know, is important and, and relatedness is important, right? But if you look at uh, the psychological literature, these concepts, they are not actually new to the psychology literature. Carl Rogers himself, nearly eight years ago, he emphasized, you know, how clients, they are able to come up with their own solution to a problem. So he emphasized autonomy. And he also argued that clients, they have the capacity to make decisions, you know, to choose what's best for them. So he was talking about competence and he also talked about genuineness towards the client. He talks about uh, unconditioned 
positive regard. So what he was talking about was relatedness. So they are concepts that have been in the literature for around, you know, 80 years. And SDT, you know, it has a lot of value. Uh, it actually emphasizes, you know, these concepts that are very important uh, for understanding motivational interviewing, the causes of behavior change. But as I said before, they don't explain why and how motivational interviewing works. I don't know that we've mentioned it on this episode yet, but SDT is a self-determination theory. A brief plug, episode 26 of our podcast uh, with Richard Ryan, where we discussed self-determination theory uh, and its relationship to MI. Many of these concepts, whether it's in SDT or some of the skills and some of the concepts in MI even, uh, Bill and Steve are quite open in saying that they didn't invent reflective listening or the use of affirmations or summaries or these sorts of things. So that a lot of the things that we're doing in MI have been around for a while. While they are helpful, they're useful tools, and when used effectively can be viewed perhaps as a cause of behavior change, or at least as a helpful element in conversation that leads to change, they fall short of being able to explain why motivational interviewing works, which is something that you attempted to unpack a bit or propose anyway in this paper of yours. So maybe we can come back to that and come back to kind of where, where you wanted to head with your discussion around the paper. That was a very good summary of my argument, Sebastian. So what I'll do, I'll very briefly describe the theory, and then we can actually get into more details so we, we can elaborate on it. As we all know, when someone talks about change, the person becomes a lot more likely to change compared to when someone else talks about change. And today, I will be describing why that is the case. So why is it that when we tell someone what to do, the person becomes a lot less likely to do what we want? And I will start by describing the phenomenon of psychological reactance. Psychological reactance is an innate human tendency to act contrary to recommendations from others, an innate tendency to be oppositional, something that we are born with a biological tendency. And the interesting thing about psychological reactance is that it is primed from our subcortical brain. And what does it mean? It means that oppositional behavior can be triggered independent of intentions, a mechanism that happens below conscious awareness, a mechanism that happens below conscious reflections. And the interesting thing about psychological reactance is that it is the product of a behavior system that evolved to facilitate group living. And how did it facilitate group living? To answer this question, we need to take a look back at the history of the human race. 
we humans have been on Earth for approximately 200,000 years, according to the fossils. And most of our existence, we spent as hunter-gatherers. In fact, 99% of our existence. And for our ancestors, to live as hunter-gatherers, to live in such small functional groups, social dominance differentiation had to be established within the group. Who bosses who had to be determined in order to establish social order. So it's only when social dominance differentiation is established within a group that we get stable hierarchies. And the group can then function as a social unit, as it allows for the division of labor and for the coordination of tasks and activities, increasing the group's chances of survival. And acting contrary to recommendations from others, the phenomenon of psychological reactance, played an important role in the formation of stable hierarchies. It is a signal that conveys social dominance within a group. It is a tactic for achieving and maintaining dominant status within a group. Implicit in having no say in terms of decision-making is social submissiveness, whereas having the option whether or not to adhere to communication from others signals dominance within a group. And to this day in human society, those who easily influenced by others, they attain low dominant status. We often hear people saying, don't let them treat you like a pushover. So a behavioral response like acting contrary to recommendations from others played an important role in the formation of stable hierarchies. So when we are told what to do, our instinctual brain intervenes. It literally thinks that a submissive act, it will lead to low dominant status and consequently less access to resources and mating opportunities. So what does our instinctual brain do? It prompts us to behave in the opposite way. It prompts us to be oppositional. And I must also add that this tendency to be oppositional becomes active when we sense that we are in a position of power for the simple reason that if we challenged a more powerful potential social opponent, it could lead to physical harm. So when we sense that it is we that are in a position of power, we tend to become oppositional. And when it comes to behavior change, it is the client 
and not the counselor. It is the client that is in a position of power, simply because it is the client that decides how to behave. It is the client that decides how to conduct himself or herself. So for behavioral interventions to be effective, we must not trigger instinctual resistance to behavior change. So in other words, we must not make the client, make the individual feel that they have been pressured to behave in a certain way. Because if we do, the client, as the ultimate decision maker, will make use of his or her instinctual survival mechanisms to assert such position of power. And that is why within a motivational interviewing framework, we do not tell people what to do. Instead, we prompt them to talk about change. We also listen for change talk. And when we hear it, we reinforce it. So in summary, within a motivational interviewing framework, we shift the client from an instinctual survival mode to a collaborative mode where the possibility of change can be explored in an evolutionary safe environment. So in many ways, it sounds like you're inviting us to really appreciate that human beings are one of the species on Earth and we are part of the mammalian group and we, we ourselves are animals. And there was a time before we became this uh, evolved self that can talk to people in Australia and North Carolina at the same time over the internet, that most of the journey that human beings have taken have been as hunter-gatherers in small social groups. And what you're describing is that the, the brain has been adapted to facilitate that group living. And the higher up the social hierarchy I went, the more access I had to resources, whether it be food and water, but also to mates and to have progeny, but that's still with us and that's still influencing all that we do. It's so evolved now that it happens at an unconscious level. And it sounds like by understanding that the invitation for us today and for the listeners to consider is, is to remember we, we are animals by nature and we have to understand our animal nature when we are interacting with other people and notice that when a client gets resistant towards you, that perhaps what you're describing is that what they're doing is they're simply saying, Listen, you're a threat to my sense of self in this hierarchy. And what I'm going to do is I'm, I'm either going to become passive or else I'm going to fight you because I want to assert who I am. And it sounds like what you're describing is one of the things that motivational interviewing does is takes that into account. And can you, can you maybe say a wee bit more about what is it that, that's happening then in the motivational interviewing conversation that you've discovered that means that people react less? 
why is there less reactions? Why is there less opposition? Why is there less psychological reactions in an MI conversation? Yes, I'll, uh, I'll answer your question. But I'll also go back to a comment that you just made, you know, that uh, yes, we are animals and we need to understand the context in which the human brain developed. Let's stop for a minute and Glenn, and think about the history of the human race, right? As I said before, we have been on Earth, more than humans, you know, uh, Homo sapiens, for around 200,000 years. And it was only in the last 10 years that we created agriculture, that we started domesticating plants and animals only 10 years ago, which signal the beginning of the end of our hunter-gathering days. By 5,000 years ago, farming was widespread and it signaled the end of our hunter-gathering days. But if you think about modernity, and if we date it back to the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, it's not more than 200 years old. So what I'm talking about here is that any evolved characteristics, any evolved adaptations, anything that helped us to survive throughout the ages is of value to an existence as hunter-gatherers and not to the modern world. So one person in the psychological literature that made a very interesting uh, argument was uh, Kasben. He argued that the human brain is made up of different uh, specialized units designed by natural selection that do not always work together. Our instinctual survival brain, our subcortical brain, does not know that it is the 21st century. It does not know that we are in the counseling setting. It still thinks that we are hunter-gatherers and it behaves accordingly. Whereas our instinctual survival, our rational brain, our cortex is well aware that indeed it is the 21st century. Yes, we are in the counseling session and they don't, don't always work together. Whereas the rational brain wants to do something about a problem behavior, the instinctual brain is there thinking, hey, you have been told what to do. You're going to fall out in the hierarchy, so I need to do something about it. I need to prime this oppositional behavior. Any motivational interviewing, as you know, one good thing about motivational interviewing is that we, the counselors, are the ones that take the lower place in the interpersonal hierarchy. And by doing that, by not telling the client what to do, by taking the lower place, by signaling to the client, your social hierarchical position is safe, you are physically safe, then what happens? it averts these unconscious instinctual you know mechanisms from being activated the mechanisms that are actually triggering oppositional behavior and because um, these mechanisms 
are now quiet, the limbic system is not as you know, active. It allows the, the rational brain to engage in reasoning and decision-making without strong influences from these non-conscious subcortical processes that ruled behavior prior to cortical evolution. So does it answer your question? Absolutely. It's, it's actually a really exciting insight to what you're describing, the understanding that, that we as counselors can have, which is the back end of your brain is the old brain. It's the part that's making sure that no one's coming to kill you and, and that you're going to be safe and that you're trying to find a mate. And But it doesn't know that the frontal cortex has evolved and developed and the cortex itself is, is really working for our benefit as well. But in the relationship that we create and the almost like psychological safety, the space that we create for someone silences the back brain, that the back brain doesn't feel threatened by anything. Therefore, it's silence allows the frontal cortex to work, the rational brain to resolve the difficulties that it knows that the person is facing. And it's that that then leads to the change talk, that then leads to them overcoming their ambivalence, that then they, they, the, the frontal cortex is the part that works through the ambivalence and comes up with, do you know what you should do? You should do it this way because that'll work for you. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, the cortex, you know, the rational brain knows what's best for us. But the, the subcortical brain, it also knows what's best for us, but they have different interests. And I think that in the clinical setting, we clinicians, we must recognize this conflict between instinctual and rational motivations. Because the, the instinctual brain, the subcortical brain is right. If you know you, you behave in a submissive manner, you're going to fall in the hierarchy. And it's there fighting to you know avoid this falling hierarchy. So it's prompting oppositional behavior. It's there, to, you know, priming, triggering oppositional behavior. And that goes back to what I said before. The subcortical brain influences behavior in a very subtle way, in a way that we are not even aware of. And I go back to the phenomenon of, phenomenon of uh, psychological reactance. The interesting thing about psychological reactance is that we become less likely to do what people are telling us to do, irrespective of the value of the recommendation. So even in circumstances where we recognize that the recommendation is of value to us, that it's going to bring benefits to us, we still become significantly less likely to do it. So that's a, a clear example of the instinctual survival brain dictating behavior. So it dictates behavior in a very subtle way, in a way that we are not even aware of. And as we know, the subcortical brain, the instinctual brain does not have verbal capabilities. So we cannot actually put into words the works of the subcortical brain, what the subcortical brain is doing. It does have a great influence uh, on behavior in general and also in the counseling you know, setting. 
Well, this is such interesting material to explore and, and certainly uh, different, but I think uh, it will be quite enjoyable for our audience to listen to and to, and to think about. I'm thinking more about the, the adaptation or the, I guess, the, the societal benefit in having social hierarchies, right? Which is what you are, have proposed, you and others are, have sort of proposed that, or, or maybe that's even accepted knowledge at this point, but that there is some advantage both to there being a dominant member of a society or of a small group. And I suppose an advantage for people to be submissive, to accept that at least for a period of time. Otherwise, they're just, it seems like there would just be constant conflict in trying to establish who would be the dominant member. So I imagine some people might think, or maybe it was just me, I don't know, I was thinking if it worked, you know, it, it was it socially adaptive for people to eventually submit at some point. Well, why wouldn't it work in a healthcare context? Right. Why wouldn't somebody just say, okay, I accept what you're saying. You have more power over me and whatnot. And I, I know you were just talking about the subcortical brain as, as sort of a firing entity. But again, I, I would imagine that at some point for a period of time, someone would accept their status in those earlier societies. It does seem though, that if you think about the context of healthcare now and a small group of hunter gatherers, that you can't possibly equate the context where behavior change might occur when you see a doctor, you know, twice a year, perhaps, or a therapist, you might see them once a week. And the rest of the time they're spent living their lives with their families, loved ones, with all the systems that are around them, not to mention their worries, their fears, their traumatic histories, whatever it might be. And it's just a much different context than following the instruction of a dominant member of, of a small group that is uh, tasked with hunting for food or gathering food. It's just a completely different context. And you could see why it might break down the, the adaptiveness of being submissive. So this is my uh, layperson's effort at contemplating this evolutionary psychi uh, psychology material. No, you've raised uh, very good points, uh, you know, Sebastian, and, and I'll actually address each one of them. And your first point that you touched on was on the importance of um, hierarchies. So, and I'm sure that uh, some of the listeners are asking the questions, why are adaptations related to interpersonal hierarchies so powerful? Why do they guide human behavior in modern society? So they are very valid questions. And one thing that I can say with total certainty is that the emergence of the ability to establish interpersonal hierarchies was the most pivotal step in the evolution of humans as social beings. You know, as I said before, when dominance differentiation is determined within a group, stable hierarchies are formed and that reduces antagonistic interactions among group members and it fosters group cohesiveness and also the group functioning as a social unit. And it also allows, as I mentioned before, division of labor and the coordination of tasks and activities, which allowed our early ancestors to forage more efficiently. 
But later on in the history of the human race, it allowed us to construct uh, pyramids. It allowed us to build Stonehenge. So we were able to move rocks that weighed many, many tons. And in the modern world, this hierarchical organization enables us to build aeroplanes, cars, computers. So they all product of this division of labor and coordination of, of tasks that result from hierarchical organization. So if not for interpersonal hierarchies, we wouldn't have survived throughout the ages. We wouldn't have accomplished as a species what we have you know, so far. And another thing that I say, and I go even further, is that interpersonal hierarchies is, is the glue that holds our society together, right? If not for this ability to form interpersonal hierarchies, we would not be able to live in society. There would not be a healthcare system because what is the healthcare system? It is a broader hierarchical organization, isn't it? We have the doctors at the top, we have the nurses, we have the nursing assistants. So we always organize ourselves in hierarchies. Even at a country level, we have the government, which is a, a big hierarchical you know, structure. And even in terms of countries, you know, countries organize themselves into hierarchies, you know, have the superpowers, you know, at the top and so on. So it's as much of relevance to today's world as it was to our um, hunter-gathering days. But obviously, we no longer live in, in small groups. But the adaptive mechanisms that allow us to survive they are the same. So if you stop to think human existence is structured around hierarchies, if there was no hierarchical organization, we would not be able to live together. Even nowadays, we would actually kill our species mates. There wouldn't be such a thing as, you know, somebody, you know, a doctor telling, you know, a nurse what to do or a patient, you know, what to do. If there was no hierarchy, if we were all highly reactant and if we are not able to form this hierarchical organization, we simply would not be social beings. We would not be able to live together, all work towards a common goal. We'd never be able to, to actually do that. So um, have I answered your question, Sebastian? Yes, for sure. And, and uh, I mean, we could talk about any one of these subjects for more time than we have today. Yeah, that, that was helpful and better understanding and unpacking the importance of these hierarchies, both in ancient times as well as in, in modern times. Thinking a bit maybe more practically, about the idea that the function of the subcortical regions that are there to, in part, resist another person asserting their dominance on us as humans. So for clinicians out there, that one of the ways that they might be able to understand the client behavior in session, or perhaps even outside of session, well, one of the things that I really appreciate about thinking about things in this, in this way is it offers yet another opportunity for us to view 
certain client behaviors in ways that aren't symptomatic of anything necessarily or syndromal or for us to pathologize this behavior. We even have disorders, oppositional defiant disorder, right? I mean, that's something that many, many children are diagnosed with every year. And not to say that those children don't struggle and don't need help, but even just thinking differently about a person's response to a parent, a teacher, a therapist, a doctor, and thinking of it as actually something that's adaptive at some level or sort of natural, maybe even at some level, that in and of itself could be something that's really helpful for clinicians in, in helping them respond in ways that are more supportive and I guess relational rather than trying to defend themselves or to kind of fight back, so to speak. Definitely. I think your comments are very valid. When somebody behaves in an oppositional way in the counseling setting or in, or in any setting, what we see is an adaptive system operating exactly as it was designed to do, but doing so in an environment that does not necessarily match that of the original environment that the adaptation evolved to operate in. So in a way, there is a mismatch between our you know, ancestral environment and today's you know, environment. I mean, obviously, it is um, of greater value to display your positional behavior when you are living in a small group um, in the African savannah compared to when you are in a counseling session. So it's the same adaptive system operating as it was designed to do, but in different contexts. And that's what I mean. The, the subcortical brain does not know it is the uh, 21st century. It does not know it is the counseling session. It is the clinical setting. And it behaves in exactly the same way it did when we were hunter-gatherers. So from a, a, a motivational interviewing perspective, we counselors, what we have to bear in mind is that every time we tell someone what to do, every time we strongly advise someone to do something, we create a counterforce. You know, a counterforce that comes from our instinctual survival brain. And that a counterforce that is triggered non-consciously. And the more we push, the greater the pushback. So we create this counterforce that wasn't even there in the first place. So it's not dissimilar to physics. And I remember from um, my high school days, my physics uh, teacher telling me, that for every action, there is a reaction. And if we punch the wall, the wall will punch us back with the same amount of force. And it's the same with our psychological counseling. You know, the more we push the person, the more we put pressure on someone to behave in a certain way, the greater the counterforce. So we create, we counselors, create this counterforce that didn't even exist. And that's the good thing about the advantage of motivational interviewing is that we do not create this counterforce. We start the, the motivational interviewing session by signaling to the client there will be no social dominance contest here. Your social 
position in the social hierarchy, you know, is safe and you are physically safe. And that really allows for the counselling session to go smoothly. And I think that most motivational interviewing counsellors will agree with me. And, and one thing that impresses me the most about motivational interviewing is how quickly the client relaxes in a motivational interviewing session. And the reason the client you know, does so is simply because we are sending these signals to the client. I'm not gonna challenge your social status, your dominant status. You are safe. And when we send these signals, we actually communicate into the subcortical brain. So what we are telling the subcortical brain is there is no need to activate your instinctual survival mechanisms because you were safe. So do not trigger oppositional behavior because you were safe. So basically, that's what we are telling the subcortical brain. And I can remember we taught the idea that when we, and motivation, when we spoke about resistance, that the practitioner was to recognize that resistance was a practitioner's issue. That And now when we t- describe it as discord, the discord is that it's recognizing that I, as a practitioner, I'm playing out of tune with the client's music. And it's me that needs to adapt what I'm doing to reconnect with them. And in some ways, it's recognizing that any resistance that, that we're experiencing, any reactance or any psychological reactance or any uh, response to us that isn't, conforming to a peaceful environment is itself, if we're paying attention to message from the client at an unconscious level, I do not feel safe right now. And I am asserting my, my need to feel safe in this environment. Now I'm going to react this way. And I suppose one of the things then is the other thing that came up for me as you were talking was as we become more aware of that as practitioners, it helps us to recognize when we we're reacting to the threat of the client reacting to us and we get in two animals rotting in, in the middle of a uh, counseling session, which is not going to be very productive. So again, this whole process is not about understanding clients to change them. It's about helping us recognize that we are the same as they are. But what we bring to the relationship is an understanding of what's happened for them and create an environment for them to feel safe with us for them to flourish, to become who they can be. That whole thing about trust, if I can create a degree of safety where the subcortical brain hasn't been triggered, it's silent, it allows the frontal cortex to come into action and to start resolving the problem for the client themselves. I have to get out of their way. And what you're saying is the best way to help someone to grow is for you to take a more humble setting for the client where you trust that they're going to make the right decisions for them. You may not always agree with them, but that's interesting in itself. This is not a competition that you're in. You're here to help. And being in competition interferes with your your ability to help. Exactly. That's precisely it, uh, Glenn. You know, it's a very good summary of what I have uh, been talking about. One uh, issue that you mentioned in the beginning is that it takes two to resist. Usually when we talk about resistance, we blame the client. The client doesn't want to change, and, but it takes two to resist. And one thing that you mentioned is that exactly the same mechanisms that are active in the client's brain will also be active 
in the counselor's brain. So it's a matter of uh, having this understanding of what's happening in the counseling session so that we can actually detect in ourselves, in our own selves, we clinicians, when we are having a reactant response, when we are, you know, having that, um, you know, uh, motivation to, to be oppositional towards the client. And I think that as clinicians, if we are trained to recognize it, we can actually bring it under the control of the rational brain if we recognize it. And then we can behave rationally. And also having this understanding that the client is being oppositional and that's human nature. It's not the client being difficult. It's not the client not being serious about our therapy. It's simply oppositional behavior. That's what we are humans are, you know, built to behave. Oppositional behavior is hardwired in the human brain. And that's one of the things that we need to keep in mind, we counselors, we need to be aware of it when we enter the counseling setting. And these dynamics that you mentioned, Glenn, between the counselor and the client, you know, is very important. This understanding of the underlying mechanisms that are active in the client's brain and also in the counselor's brain. Had a couple of different thoughts also there. I mean, one is, if you think about it, all of the sources of, I'll use the term negative feedback on the part of a clinician, either from their client, so their client may not show for a session, maybe the client has an opportunity to review them online or something and gives them some poor rating. Maybe in the session itself, there's pushback or an expression of lack of faith or belief in what the clinician's proposing. All of these would be threats to the clinician's own sense of professional self-worth, self-esteem perhaps. It could even go so far as if you have enough of these experiences strung together, the person might start feeling threatened of their job, perhaps maybe feeling like their job is in jeopardy. But even as trainers, you know, if we get feedback that's negative, I mean, that's again, a threat to us and that how our tendency might be when that subcortical part of our brain's firing to maybe dismiss it or kind of put that back on the client or the learner. When we do that, if that's our initial reaction to the negative feedback that's coming our way, that protects us. It also prevents us perhaps from using the, the more sort of thought-based parts of our brain to consider the feedback that we're getting, to think critically and, and maybe more effectively about how we can use this feedback to make our treatment better, to make our trainings better. You know, lots of places where we can go from a clinician standpoint. Going back a little bit further to your comments about if you push, you get pushed back, the, the kind of punch the wall, the wall punches you back. It, it seems like a way of thinking of that clinically is if you try to push the patient or the client towards change, they're, they're going to maybe naturally push you back, or at least that's something you might expect. It would seem also, I think that pushing and pulling as kind of opposites, and you can imagine that there may be some tendencies to pull a client towards change rather than push them. And, and the way I was thinking in my mind was, 
when we teach affirmations, for instance, we make sure that an affirmation is, is a genuine expression of how we view the client, but based on evidence, based on something tangible, not that something that we're, we're just inventing out of midair that would come across as disingenuous. If we're being disingenuous with our affirmations, or if we're being overly sort of cheerleady about a person's abilities without really knowing that person, that might feel like we're pulling them towards change. And I think you might also expect that the person might feel like the clinician's not really understanding them or getting them or valuing them, and they may pull back, so to speak. So I, I think the sort of pushing back idea also works with pulling as well. I completely agree, uh, Sebastian. If we stop to think, what do we achieve when we affirm a, you know, a client? You know, we make the other person feel valued, don't we? We make the other person feel accepted. And it helps to build that sense of uh, self-worth or of uh, self-efficacy. And that sense of uh, self-worth is very important because when uh, we get that message, you know, across that, you know, you are worth listening to. So that's a very powerful message and it makes the client feel safe and it quiets an limbic arousal and it allows for the thinking brain, the cortex, to, you know, engage in, in reasoning and, and decision making. So um, that, that's very important. But the minute that we try to affirm a client, let's say that um, we praise the client, the affirmation comes across as not being genuine. You know, let's say we praise the client, you know, I'm really happy that you gave up, you know, smoking, congratulations. So what we are actually saying to the client is that, fantastic, I was able to manipulate you, I was able to get you to um, give up smoking. So that's not really, that's an inappropriate affirmation, and it's an affirmation that uh, will have the reverse impact the person will feel manipulated. And that's where we have to be very careful when we affirm someone that we actually being genuine. And you touched on a subject that's very important because motivational interviewing is not only successful because we don't tell people what to do, it's also successful because we use the Rogerian client-centered uh, techniques. They're also very important for behavior change. And Bill Miller and Stephen Ronick, they talk about the spirit of motivational interviewing. And uh, the Rogerian techniques, they are very much part of the spirit of uh, motivational you know, interviewing. What do they do? The Rogerian techniques, when used in motivational interviewing, they enhance the client's perception of social support. And obviously, that makes the client feel safe. It reduces that activation of our non-conscious, you know, instinctual, intraspecific, you know, survival mechanisms, you know, so they too serve to show the subcortical areas of the human brain that the counselor, the potential social opponent, cares about the individual and will not harm him or her. So it, it enhances this feeling 
of being social hierarchically and also physically safe. And safe here is the operative word. As we all know, life before society was very brutish, was very short. We humans, we used to kill each other for food because there were no laws, there was no government to force us to behave. So we really need to place it into context why safety is so important for humans, because that's the environment that we adapted to live in. And the Rogerian techniques, they are very, very important. You know, like if you think back about Carl Rogers, how he was really big in relation to genuine empathic response, you know, how to show true concern about the person, you know, to show that we actually understand, you know, the person's world. You know, all these techniques, they actually, you know, as I said before, they enhance that perception of the counselor caring about the client, which enhances the client's feeling of being safe. A non-judgmental approach, for instance, by the counselor, it serves to minimize either conscious or, or non-conscious perception of negative feelings towards the person. And what does it do? It mitigates the activation of this intraspecific defense mechanisms that can hinder behavior change. And also Carl Rogers, he always talked about genuineness towards the client, which requires the counselor to actually care, to actually be concerned, and to actually understand the person. And what Carl Rogers, you know, said in his last book was that they are not actually techniques, they actually a way of being. And he was right, because as we know, we have the amygdala in our primitive brain that's continuously scanning potential social opponents, scanning everyone around us for signs of threat. And in a genuine caring relationship, these signs of threat will not be detected. So it will quiet the limbic system. So the Rogerian techniques, they're also very important. They are part of the spirit of motivational interviewing and also the micro-counseling skills, you know, how you know, we, we use the micro-counseling skills to make the client feel heard cared for, you know, feel understood. And to do that, we use open-ended questions and reflections and affirmation summaries. And so active listening skills, they're very important because when we use our active listening skills, what we are signaling to the client is, I respect you. You know, I respect what you have to say. I respect your intelligence. I am actually interested in find out where you are coming from. I'm, I'm interested in what you mean, in what you were thinking. And above all, it signals to the client, you are worth listening to, as I mentioned before. So the Rogerian techniques, they are also active ingredients that make motivational interviewing such a successful wire counseling uh, strategy. I've just written down so many different things here from what you're saying, but what strikes me is it's almost like the engaging 
process in motivation viewing. Essentially, it's soothing the subcortical and limbic systems. That's what we're doing in the, in the engaging process is silencing that part of the client's brain to let them feel safe. And until that happens, there's no point going anywhere else. Once we've settled that part of the brain, then we can engage the frontal cortex, which is where the focusing starts. What's the issue here? And what? And then the evocation. Well, what do you what do you want to do about this? What are your ideas from this perspective? So the frontal cortex doesn't get a chance to get really into that if the person feels threatened. And what strikes me about that is what sort of life has this client lived before they come to see us? And how safe has that environment been for them? So I guess that some people's defense mechanisms are much more sensitive to small vibrations in their environment because of the, the threats that they've experienced growing up. And it's just they're heightened and they need to keep themselves safe. That's how they've survived this long, even in those early threatening situations. One of the thoughts came into me is we often talk about the writing reflex in motivational interviewing. And I wondered, is that potentially one of the triggers? Even the idea that it's a writing reflex would suggest that it's arising at an unconscious level, that we as practitioners have to be conscious as you're describing it. We have to, we have to pay attention to ourselves and and I know that when I have examined my writing reflex, my writing reflex is I want something for you to do something that ultimately makes me feel better. I want you to, if you would just stop smoking, then it would tell me that I'm a good practitioner and I can feel good about myself. Whereas the work that I need to do is what, what I need to do to feel good about myself and then go to help other people so that I don't need you to change to make me feel anything, which is that humbling, that compassionate perspective. Again, just from this evolutionary thread that you've created, it just strikes me that given the fact that the Industrial Revolution was only over 200 years ago and Roger's techniques were introduced only 80 years ago, it's almost like that in itself is you're describing we're still very early in our awareness of this and that these types of conversations, this type of research that you're doing is essentially part of the human development of the higher thinking that in generations to come, much more of this will become much more natural to people. It's We are learning it now as a species because we're only learning to understand it and then we can begin to develop it and it'll become much more natural, a bit like the printing press. Now we're on computers. It'll take a bit of time for this to happen, but our audience are part of that jigsaw that each, and each person listening to this podcast, each person listening to what you're describing is an aspect of that human development by working on themselves, by working on their relationship with themselves and understand when they're being triggered and what could soothe that part of their brain can then help them be much more supportive and containing of a client that will then help them grow to become who they are. It's a reciprocal journey. I'm on a journey to understand why I do what I do as I help someone else discover why they do what they do. Precisely, Glenn. You know, as you mentioned, you know, our adaptations, they are mainly of value to an existence as, you know, hunter-gatherers. And we haven't had enough time in the history of the human race to adapt to the modern world. And the writing reflex, you know, is also an expression of that. If there's a problem there, you know, we grasp it. Now, as we, you know, we see it and we provide advice, you know, that's what we should do. And it's interesting how it's called the writing reflex because we do it without thinking. So it's not really under direct control of the rational brain. It's been primed by our subcortical brain. And because there is this mismatch between our adaptations 
and the modern world, the way around it is for us clinicians to be aware of uh, you know what mechanisms are influencing psychological counseling because if we have this awareness then we can actually bring our behavior we can bring the doings of the subcortical brain of the instinctual survival brain under the control of the rational brain and we can actually do something about it so you know i completely agree with what you were talking about Glenn. And, and one thing that I also like to mention very briefly you know, is that we know that uh, motivational interviewing is not the only counseling technique that's effective. We have a number of counseling techniques, you know, CBT, 12-step program, you know, and so on. And an important question also is, okay, you know, like, um, these techniques are also uh, effective. So how do you explain it? And an explanation for that is that, you know, they too act on the same mechanism of change that is primarily targeted by motivational interviewing. They too may quiet limbic arousal, allowing the subcortical brain to engage in decision-making, in reasoning and decision-making. And if indeed the change environment can be created outside a motivational interviewing framework, then the logical question would be why to use motivational interviewing in the first place? And my answer to that is that motivational interviewing, we start counseling by deactivating these non-conscious you know, instinctual mechanisms that will hinder behavior change. So we do it from the very outset of psychological counseling. And we know that even a 15-minute uh, session of motivational interviewing can have a very long impact on behavior that's apparent two years down the track. And with other counseling of other orientations, you would take a much more elaborate you know, process you know, to gain that sense of safety. So in motivational interviewing, we start by signaling to the client, I'm the one that's going to take the lower place. Yeah, I'm not going to struggle with you. There'll be no dominant struggle. So that's you know a good thing about motivational interviewing. And also, as we all know, is stress. What does stress do? It sensitizes our instinctual survival mechanisms. That's something that we have known for many years. It sensitizes the fight or flight reaction, and it also sensitizes our positional behavior, which has been triggered from our instinctual survival brain. So one thing about motivational interviewing is that the client becomes really relaxed from the very outset of counseling. So we actually avoiding that initial stress that will sensitize our instinctual survival brains, which make motivational interviewing very uh, powerful technique. And one last thing about it that I want to mention is that motivational interviewing is also of vital importance for clients that have been coerced into treatment. And most counselors, most therapists, they'll be able to relate to me. A lot of clients, they undergo psychological counseling because they have been 
coerced by family members, you know, friends, you no know, healthcare professionals, by the criminal justice system. For instance, uh, as we all know, in the criminal justice system, for someone to get parole, they have to engage in intense psychological treatment to address the offending behavior. And what do they do in the correctional setting? They provide offenders with what they call preparation course, which is motivational interviewing. So through motivational interviewing, through directing the client's cognition towards making the decision to actually engage in such intensive uh, psychological treatment, they get to believe that they chose to take part in, in treatment by their own accord. And that averts that instinctual oppositional behavior. It averts that antagonism towards the intensive psychological counseling, which uh, enables the, the person to actually take part in the psychological counseling actively and, and to gain a lot out of it. Motivational interviewing is also very important you know, in this respect. Part of why MI can produce fairly quick results or can be viewed as a brief intervention that doesn't require you know, years of, of treatment and that sort of thing is the, the style, the spirit, the kind of attitude that the practitioner exhibits. And thus that is less threatening. I was wondering if you think that the reflection, which is the, the main way that MI practitioners communicate with their clients. And if we think about what a reflection is, since it is basically a way of either presenting verbatim what the client has just said or repackaging it in some way, that in and of itself is less threatening because that's not something that's coming from me as the practitioner. It's coming from them. They are hearing it back. It is their words that are presented back to them. Whereas like a question or certainly directives or information, certainly information that comes in an unsolicited way, that is viewed as something that's coming from the outside, like some kind of external organism that's invading them. And so maybe that's a way of understanding why a reflection, along with the, the MI spirit, you know, you kind of put those things together and it, it could be a way to understand why MI produces the results that it does in, so, in quick ways very often. I agree with uh, everything you said, uh, Sebastian. And I think uh, reflections, you know, as you know, you mentioned, you know, they're very important. They're integral, you know, part of uh, motivational interviewing, and it's part of the spirit of MI of of making the client feel uh, understood and, and and also feel valued. And also, you know, we as counsellors, you know, we know that um, we can make reflections a lot more powerful. We can reframe it. We can reframe it in, in a very positive way. But it is all part of making the client feel safe. And as I said before, you know, safety is the operative word. We are adapted for a very harsh environment. And, and that's why safety is so important. And that's why, you know, motivational interviewing is, is such an effective treatment because it achieves that sense of safety in a very quickly. Well, as so often is the case, 
we could continue to talk and it's fascinating and there's so many more questions and more avenues to follow, but I'm conscious of our time and what I'm leaving this with is just that reinforcing of when we as practitioners meet what we have described as resistance, the most effective thing to do is meet resistance with non-resistance. Exactly. So for us not to react to your reaction and to try and understand the whole process of motivation is that desire to be understanding of the other person. And that's the growth for me as a practitioner to get to a place where I don't need you to do anything for me. I'm here to serve and support you. And to get to a place where I actually believe and know in myself that you have the capacity, you have the means to resolve this problem for yourself. And my job is to be with you and to explore your world with you without me trying to fix it for you. And I guess one of the ways of understanding this is I remember learning that idea of, you know, if you're doing a jigsaw or you're doing Sudoku or something and somebody comes over your shoulder and tells you where to put the piece, there's a reaction. And when, when I do that in my training groups, very often people say, I don't like people doing it because I didn't ask you for help. The invitation has to be there. Can I help you? And only I can only help you when you give me permission to do that. So again, it's, it's, it's an invitation for me to continue to grow to a place where I can value you for who you are, even when you're doing things I don't agree with. When I can create that space, then what you're doing that I consider wrong, maybe also things that you're not happy with yourself and you will make the changes because it doesn't suit you not to suit me. And I think that's the shift that you're describing and that motivation driven offers and you're offering as an insight into why human beings behave that way. Thank you for that. That's, that's been wonderful and uh, certainly very stimulating. And as, as we always do at close to the end of a session, we always ask our guests, you know, other than this that you've been describing, is there anything particular that you're doing at the minute or you're exploring at the minute, whether it's MI related or not, that you want to share with us for, for a few minutes? As you know, my passion is evolutionary psychology. That's something that I've always been very interested in. And I think that my work has focused, you know, mainly on the client. And I think that the step forward now is actually understanding the impact of these mechanisms that we have been talking about today on the counselor themselves. And I think that's very important because, as you know, we mentioned in this session, the client's behavior can trigger these unconscious instinctual mechanisms from the counselor. And that will have an impact, obviously, on the counseling relationship. And I think that's why we, we have so much within variability when we actually comparing different counseling techniques of different you know orientations you usually we find uh, a lot more variability because some clients they can trigger that mechanism on the counselor and other counselors they instinctively diffuse it so i think that's the next step is to actually understand the impact of these mechanisms on the client, on the counselor, and understand this dance of dominance that occurs in the counseling setting, taking both into account the counselor and the client. So I think that's the, the way forward. 
really interesting stuff. And we, we look forward to some of your uh, future work and uh, perhaps we'll, we'll have you on once you've worked out what's going on with us practitioners in the room. Um, <laughs> it will be my pleasure, Sebastian. <laughs> towards the end, we always, uh, we also ask our guests if you would be uh, willing to have people contact you and if so with uh, questions of course and, and ideas uh, and if so how can people contact you you can contact me on twitter bionito4 that is my uh, twitter you know address or you can send me an email my contact details are actually on the article Understanding Motivational Interviewing, an Evolutionary Perspective. So I've got all my contact details there. And uh, I'm quite happy for one listeners to contact me. Fantastic. Thank you, Bill. Again, just to reinforce, if uh, having listened to this episode, if you have any questions for us or ideas for future episodes, you can contact us on podcast at glenhines.com or you can have conversations with us and the, the rest of the people here uh, in the, the group at Change Talking on Twitter, at Talking to Change on Facebook, and on Instagram, it's Talking to Change Podcast. Excellent. Well, Bill, thanks so much for today. It's been wonderful. It's been fascinating. It's leaving us with, with many, many questions that we'll certainly uh, enjoy mulling over. So mm. thank you for your time, Bill. We appreciate it. It's been my great pleasure. Thank you. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.